conversation that names our fears. So needless to say, I've been thinking about fears this week. Childhood seems to be the low point of our lives sometimes when it comes to fear, right? You remember your childhood fears? I was, I was afraid of heights. I continue to be afraid of heights. Takes me twice as long if I have to be six feet or more off the ground to get a job done. Uh, I was and continue to be a bit afraid of swimming pools and water. After three years of failing the beginning Red Cross swimming lessons, my mom finally gave up and said, you're on your own. But my greatest fear as a child were the monsters that lived under my bed. I heard that. There's a number of us, right? I was sure that if I had to get up in the middle of the night and stepped out onto the bedroom floor, that they would reach out from underneath the bed and grab my ankles and drag me under, and it would be over. That's probably why I stuffed so much stuff underneath the bed. My mom was always getting after me. Why don't you clean under your bed? I never explained to her that if I had more stuff under the bed, the fewer monsters can fit under there, right? It's impeccable logic. And this was a, a very refined fear because I knew that if I stepped out at least three feet away from the side of the bed, then their arm would not be long enough to reach out and get me. So there was a you know, very, very precise way of getting out of bed in the middle of the night if I had to. Some of you are laughing at me. So let's hear some of your childhood fears. Just a word or two, a phrase. What were you afraid of when you were a kid? The monster in the closet. Okay. What was it in the closet? Tigers in the closet that were going to eat her at night. Okay, we're on a roll. The basement. Oh, yeah. Hiding outside your bedroom door is what? A monster outside the bedroom door. Oh. A zombie or something, right? Right. The sauna. Yeah, sauna. Sona. 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 Oh, the sauna. Okay, the steam bath. Sorry. Masks were doing something funny with that. So we probably all have fears, right? This is a fairly universal part of being human: is that we have some things that we're afraid of. So let's take a look at one of the more visceral fear experiences in the gospel. If you join me in chapter 8 of Luke, Luke chapter 8, I'll begin reading at verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake, it's the Sea of Galilee he's talking about. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, Jesus fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters, and the storm subsided, and all was 
calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Let's just look at uh, three different aspects of this this story. The first is the, the storm. The Hebrew people were not known for their love of the oceans or large bodies of water. They were not a seafaring people. They had a a fear of large bodies of water. For them, it represented chaos or even hell, the abyss. I suggest that one of the examples of this is seen in the story of Jonah. Jonah was told to go east to Nineveh, right? But instead, he got on board a ship going west, (laughs) as far away from God and his mission and his call as he could possibly get. And of course, a storm arose on the Mediterranean Sea as he was heading for Spain. And there's this whole elaborate back and forth trying to determine who's responsible for the storm. Finally, Jonah admits to it, and he gives them the suggestion that perhaps the only way for this storm to subside is if they would throw him overboard. And I would suggest to you that given the fear uh, that the Hebrew people had for the ocean, he probably said, as far away from God as I could possibly be, as far away from this mission that he wants me to be on is at the bottom of the sea. That's what the sea represented to the Hebrew people. So there's a fear that they share as this storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus rebukes this storm. The word rebuke is a relationally confrontational word, isn't it? We tend to rebuke people more than anything else. The inference here is that there's evil behind this storm. This isn't just your garden variety storm. There's something evil behind it. Perhaps the devil is trying to get Jesus out of the way by drowning him. But it's ultimately the devil who is being rebuked when Jesus stands up and rebukes that storm. The devil is seen as the power behind that storm. Storms come in many varieties, don't they? Storms come in the form of the zombies outside the bedroom door and the monsters under the bed and the things that are down in the basement. Those are storms in our lives. Storms also come when the devil takes advantage of things that happen to us and begins to stir up terror and fear in our life. Things like hurricanes and other storms, emotional turmoil in our lives, arguments with people, disagreements, conflict, dangers, weakness, political rhetoric, economic downturns, international relations, all of these these things can become storms when the devil sticks his finger in there and starts to stir up our fears. Jesus rebuked that storm, though. Second thing to look at in the midst of this storm is that Jesus is asleep. Jesus is seemingly oblivious to the storm that's terrifying his disciples. 
The word that's used here in Luke's gospel for Jesus being asleep is the same word that we get hypnosis from. Jesus was in a deep sleep. This is the only occurrence of this word in the New Testament. But this same story is told in Matthew and Mark's Gospels. In those two versions of this, the word that they use for asleep is the one that is often used in the New Testament as a a euphemism for being dead. You know, it's when somebody dies, we don't like saying they're dead or they died. We'd we'd prefer to say they, they passed away or They've gone on to heaven. We use these euphemisms to soften the blow a little bit, don't we? Well, one typical way of doing that back in the New Testament era was to say that they had fallen asleep. And in Matthew and Mark's version of this story, Jesus is sound asleep. Perhaps you could say he's dead to the world. But Jesus doesn't stay asleep, does he? He gets up. The Greek word that's used for getting up is a word which is used a number of times during the gospel to refer to miraculous healings. When the leper or the paralytic is healed, they get up. They've been laying down or they've been incapacitated in some way and they get up. It's also a a word that's used when referring to some of the people in the New Testament that Jesus raised from the dead. They got up. It's been suggested by some commentators that this word that's used when Jesus gets up from being dead to the world is like little resurrections that happen every time Jesus heals somebody and they get up. There's a little resurrection going on there. In other words, the man who was dead to the world has been resurrected and he's ready to bring that resurrection power to bear on the fear of these disciples who are terrified by this storm. So there's the storm, and there's Jesus who is asleep, and then there's fear, perhaps captured most succinctly in that statement that they make to Jesus as they wake him up, we're going to drown. We're going to die. Our lives are at risk here. This statement from the disciples' lips is an especially assertive one, right? They're not beating around the burn bush. They're not being passive. We often look down on them for what we consider to be their weak faith, that they maybe couldn't calm the storm themselves. But in reality, they did have faith. They woke Jesus up. And they named their fear. We're going to drown. Life as we know it is about to end. Naming our fear is not a sign of weak faith, brothers and sisters. It's a conversation that brings our fear and our weakness and our vulnerability, the insecurities, all of those things in our life. It brings them into the presence of the only one who can calm them. If we don't name our fear, we're probably tying the hands of God in his effort to bring calm in our lives instead of terror. 
In Matthew's version, Jesus' response to this, we're going to drown, is he says, you of little faith. In Mark's version of this story, he says, do you still have no faith? But here in Luke, Jesus asks a different question. He says, where is your faith? Now, one way of interpreting that is similar to the ones in the other Gospels. Jesus might have been saying, I'm disappointed that your faith is missing in action. Where is it? But it might also mean in what, or more importantly, in whom are you putting your faith? Where is your faith? I would suggest that Jesus is asking the second question. Jesus saw this as perhaps the next in a series of teaching opportunities that would strengthen their faith. Remember that faith is a response to God speaking first, right? We don't just muster faith. We don't come to believe that something is going to happen just because we want it to. That's not faith. But when God said, here's, when God says, here's what I want to accomplish, and we respond by saying, I'm on board with that, that's faith. Faith is the response to an expression of God's will or to his revelation to us. So what should the disciples have had faith in? From one point of view, they express their faith by waking Jesus up, right? Jesus, we're in trouble here. What are we going to do to solve this problem? So perhaps Jesus, when he's asking, where is your faith, is saying, oh, here's another opportunity to teach them a faith lesson. So far, up to this stage of Luke's account of, of the gospel, the disciples have witnessed Jesus in chapter 4 performing an exorcism. Jesus had power over demons. In chapter 4, there's many healings that Jesus performs. In chapter 5, specifically, he heals a paralyzed man. In chapter 7, he heals the centurion's servant without even having to be there. Also in chapter 7, he raises the widow of Nain's son from the dead. These are things that the disciples had front row seats to watch, right? And with each of these power over demons, power over people that were sick, power over the people, people who were dead, their faith in Jesus is building. They're coming to recognize that Jesus has power over more and more kinds of powers, 2,000 years ago, all of these miracles would have been something that had its, seen as something that had its roots in the consequences of sin. If you got sick, if you had a disease, it's probably because you did something wrong. That was the way they saw God working 2,000 years ago. Behind these things, there would have been demonic influence, probably, certainly in people who were possessed by demons. But here on the Lake of Galilee is Jesus' first recorded nature miracle in the Gospel of Luke. If storms and the watery deep were also rooted in evil, then Jesus' power over the forces of nature is evidence of his divine power over evil, isn't it? If the sea is the place, the abyss, the place where 
evil resides as far away from God as we can get. If, if, the demon, if uh, demons are behind the storms that assail us in life, then if Jesus can calm the storm, then Jesus has power over those forces. He is God. Jesus is the sovereign over all the evil and destructive forces that work in our lives and in our world today, isn't he? Isn't he? Jesus is the one who can put things back into their place. Jesus is the one with the authority. Jesus is looking out for our well-being. Jesus has our back. Faith in Jesus' power over demons and illness and even death should have been taking root in the disciples. They had watched these things. And faith was taking root in them. To hand over our fears to God does not necessarily mean that bad things won't happen to us, right? But if we have faith that the plans of our sovereign Lord are good plans... And that ultimately, they are what is best for us. Then we have a peace that enables us to face the fears. Jesus knew that one day he would die. And in that last night in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Lord, if there's another way to accomplish your purposes, please make that happen now. He knew that he was going to die, and he knew this. Three different times in the Gospels, he tells his disciples point blank what's going to happen. He knew that this was going to be the end of his human life. But his own assurance that this plan was his father's plan, that it would not fail, was what was growing within him with each day. He had greater and greater confidence that his heavenly father who was the one that had instituted this plan. His heavenly father knew that this was the one and only way to conquer sin and death in the human race. Jesus had faith in his heavenly father. Where was his faith? In his heavenly father. Where was the disciples' faith? In answer to Jesus' question, where was the disciples' faith? I would suggest it was right there in the boat. Their faith was in Jesus. The Jesus who would say, in this world you will have trouble. But, I have overcome the world. Their faith was in the Jesus who would say, I will never leave you or forsake you. What was the effect of this miracle the calming of the storm. What was the effect in the lives of these disciples? It says at the end of the story that they were fearful and amazed. They were asking, who is this that has this kind of power? The word fear in this context is not terror or dread, but it's reverence. They were amazed at the power of Jesus. It was a reverent amazement at the power of Jesus over every force of nature and every force behind which was the devil. The point here is that the presence of God is the solution to our fears. 
God is in the boat with us when we're afraid. Right? Are we convinced of that? Too bad I didn't realize that God was under my bed. It would have made childhood an awful lot easier. Fear becomes reverence as we learn to name our fears, and specifically as we learn to name them to God. A prayer discipline uh, that, that I want to, to share with you this morning is attributed to a man named Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a lay brother in a Carmelite monastery in Paris back in the 17th century. His primary assignments there were working in the kitchen, doing the dishes, and later in his years there repairing people's sandals. But Brother Lawrence had a reputation for experiencing profound peace in the midst of doing dishes and cooking and repairing sandals and dealing with the storms of life. He had a reputation for experiencing profound peace. And eventually visitors began to seek him out. They would come to the monastery not to see one of the monks, one of the fathers, but to talk to the guy who was working in the dish room. And eventually, the abbot, one of the leaders of the monastery, began writing down the conversations that Brother Lawrence would have with people who came to seek this man who had such tremendous peace. Those notes would become the basis for the book, The Practice of the Presence of God, one of the classics in Christian prayer. The Practice of the presence of God. In that book, we find this summary of Brother Lawrence's understanding of how to do that practice. He said, the most necessary practice in the spiritual life, the most necessary practice in the spiritual life is the practice of the presence of God, whereby the soul finds her joy and contentment in God's companionship. Do you see God as your companion? I know God is many things. He is awesome, sovereign Lord. Who, if he snaps his fingers, the whole thing goes, lights out. <laughs> but God is also companion. He says, the practice of the presence of God, whereby the soul finds her joy and contentment in God's companionship, talking humbly and lovingly to him always and at all times, informally, conversationally, as with a friend. So while he was going about his work, while he was dealing with the storms of life, he was constantly having a conversation with God, who was his companion there in the kitchen talking to God about everything, literally everything. That's what brought him peace in the midst of storms. A couple centuries later, Thomas Kelly, a Quaker author on prayer, elaborated on this in his book called A Testament of Devotion. Thomas Kelly described the fact that in our lives there are two different conversations that are going on simultaneously. 
One is with the people that we live with, that we work with, that we go to school with, the people in our neighborhood. We're having conversations all the time, aren't we? But he said at a deeper level, there's a conversation going on with God. And the object is to get to the place in life where we don't stop talking to God when we're talking to people. But instead, we have this continual prayer conversation with God at a deep, deep level. A conversation that's probably interacting with the conversation you're having with other people. A conversation that's giving you discernment about what to say next, what to do. A conversation where the Lord is helping us to process what's we're, what we're hearing in these conversations and what we're experiencing in the storms of life. So the practice of the presence of God, contentment in God's companionship, talking humbly and lovingly to him always and at all times. A nonstop conversation which ought to include our fears because as we name them, the peace of God has the opportunity to drive them out of our lives, to give us peace in the midst of the storms. William Barclay, in his comment on this passage of Scripture, says, Wherever Jesus is, the storm becomes calm. Wherever Jesus is, the storm becomes calm. Wherever Jesus is, in a hospital bed, the storm becomes calm. Wherever Jesus is as we're awaiting surgery, the storm becomes calm. Wherever Jesus is, the financial challenges of our life become calm. Wherever Jesus is, the upheaval caused by black mold in your house becomes calm. Wherever Jesus is, the turmoil of a lost loved one becomes calm. Our lives are constantly assailed by fears which the devil would love to take advantage of. Our faith is not in our own ability to calm those storms, though, but rather in the assurance that Jesus is in the boat with us. Jesus knew that his death was imminent. He knew that he would die on a Roman cross. The elements of communion that we're going to share together here are a symbol of that death that he knew was coming. Yet in the midst of that storm, Jesus could say, not my will, but your will. Jesus could say to the thief at his side, today you will be with me in paradise. This is a little bit of grape juice and a little bit of bread. But bound up in those elements is the death of Jesus Christ and all of the emotions that he fell as that, felt as that death was approaching.
And as we share this, we share in his death. We share in those feelings. We share in those fears. And so this morning, as we're sharing in the Lord's Supper together, let's also share in the calm that comes when we name our fears and let God have control. And let's pray. I would invite you silently to name your fears this morning. What is it these days, now that you're all grown up, what is it that is fearful to you? What are the things that get your blood pressure up? What are the things that keep you from doing that which otherwise you would do? Lord, we're going to drown. Name your fear. Lord, we're wise and experienced enough to know that you don't wave a magic wand over our fear and it all goes away just because we prayed in the name of Jesus. We know that fears in our lives often are the kind of thing that we are going to battle day after day after day, which means that we are going to have to name it over and over and over again. We are going to have that deep conversation with you that goes on continually throughout the course of our day. We are going to have that companionship conversation about these fears every moment of every day. But Father, we thank you this morning for reminding us that you're in the boat with us. If we're willing to have the conversation with you, then you're in the boat with us. You are the one in whom we have faith. You are the one who has power over our fear. So help us for this day, Lord, to name it and to receive your companionship and your peace. Lord, we take great comfort in knowing that you have experienced everything that we have gone through. That you know what it is to be a human being. You know what it is to walk in our shoes. Thank you for your companionship. Thank you for your liberating power. Thank you for your peace. We give you praise. In Christ's name. And all of God's children say.